0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Ivor Davis, and he published a book in 2019, which I read through today, a really fascinating book, titled Manson Exposed, A Reporter's 50-Year Journey into Madness and Murder. And there is an audio book of this book if you're interested in that, but this is not Ivor's first book. He's also written uh, another book titled Ladies and Gentlemen, The Penguins in 2018, and also a very well-received book that I saw on Amazon with like over 105 star reviews titled The Beatles and Me on Tour. That was published in 2014. And an original book that he published on Manson goes all the way back to 1970, which he mentioned in this book, that Manson Exposed. The title of that book was, and you can still see it online, you have to pay $315 if you want to read it, but it's Five to Die, the book that helped convict Manson. And it actually was part of the court case of Charles Manson. And Ivor Davis has his own website, The website is his full name, Ivor, I-V-O-R-D-A-V-I-S, books.com. And you can see all his works there. He has contact information there. But uh, I'm delighted to have him. I've kind of been chasing him down for a little bit. So Ivor Davis, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much, uh, William. And uh, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name, uh, you have a long career in journalism. Can you talk about your background and how you got involved in the Manson Family... Saga
1: Well very briefly, um, in the early 60s I came to America without a job and I was very lucky because in 1963 uh, I was hired to be West Coast correspondent in Los Angeles for the biggest uh, one of the biggest London newspapers in England, the London Daily Express and and some of you listening and, and watching may know back in those days, People actually read newspapers. Can you believe that? Um, so I, I worked for the paper, and I was their one-man West Coast bureau, and as a result, I got into some terrific stories. I mean, I, I, and that's how the Manson situation came up. They called me one, one morning at the weekend. They said, go down to uh, the canyons of Beverly Hills because there's been a, a series of murders, and that's all they knew. And, and that's how I got onto the Manson case on day one in 1969, I think it was about August the 10th, 1969. And off I went to uh, the Beverly Hills area. Uh, it was a, a, a street called Cielo Drive. And there I there was a bunch of TV people, radio people, and that's how Manson's murders unfolded. But it unfolded over a period of time. And I must say, um, when I got there, I had not a clue uh, what the situation was and no, nor did anybody else. But, um, the amazing thing is, and this is such a coincidence, literally three doors away from the murder house was my old soccer friend, a guy called Phil Freed. And so I popped in his house and said, I'm here. Can I use your phone? Because those were the days when you didn't have cell phones. Can I use your phone to call my story? And when I'm ready and I said, Phil, who lives in that house? And he said, well, I know that Roman Polanski lived there with his wife and a bunch of other people. I said, Roman Polanski hes married to, to Sh- Sharon Tate, indeed. And so that's how I got a slightly head start on who lived there. But then we waited to find out uh, who were the victims were. And then slowly over the next few hours, the names of the victims unfolded. And so there I was in the front lines of the situation, uh, learning, of course, that Sharon Tate the beautiful actress, eight months pregnant, had been murdered. She was the wife of Roman Polanski, the famous Chinatown film director, who was in England at the time. And the uh, and I, I learned the other names of the other victims as the police revealed to them, revealed them to us as we stood outside uh, the estate. And that was how I kind of got uh, uh, got christened on the on the whole Manson craziness murder tragedy
0: right and that was august
1: 1969
0: right correct yes and the total the brutality of that wasn't really known to the public as much or did it come right out at that time how horrific the crimes were
1: the 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 horrifying nature of the murders didn't come out until three to four hours five hours later by that time there was a, a, a press group standing outside the house the cops came out and they announced the death of sharon tate eight months pregnant, uh, and, and and there was a bunch of other people. Wojtok Frakowski, who was a friend of the film director Roman Polanski. Wojtok Fraskowski was a, w- a wannabe filmmaker. Also murdered was Abigail Folger, who it turned out was a San Francisco heiress to the Folger coffee fortune. And and also, strangely enough, a young man by the name of Stephen Parent. Who was found in a car in the driveway. And it turned out, of course, that Stephen Parent, who was a teenager, 18, had been at the wrong place at the wrong time because he was murdered uh, as he was driving away from the estate and he was visiting not uh, Sharon Tate, but he was visiting his, a guy in the guest house, a guy called Stephen Parent. And so that's what happened the first day. And then All hell broke loose 24 hours later because the cops said, Hey, two other people have been murdered in similar fashion. And they were Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. And they were murdered like 15 miles away in the Los Feliz area of LA. The first murder was in the high rent district of Beverly Hills. And we never knew that the murders were linked. And in fact, I remember a policeman uh, told me a few days later well they're not linked at all it's just uh, obviously a copycat killing right. uh, but then we learned of course years uh, years later months later what the true story was to, to how this all uh, uh, unfolded
0: right how it all connected people didn't know at the time there were months of like hyper paranoia in la at that time right
1: i i can tell you this william that the the panic in hollywood was overwhelming i know that steve mcqueen uh, and, and and who was around and new sharon take uh, got himself a shotgun and slept with it uh, under the bed and people people hired uh, guards guards and guard dogs because that was a period when you could actually go up to people's houses knock at the door there weren't electric gates there weren't uh, intercoms and it was kind of easy come easy go so here was a a, 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 a whole run of murders that were unexplained and unsolved in Hollywood of Hollywood people. And so Hollywood people got paranoid. Uh, they, they started getting gates and guard dogs and, 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 and 24-hour security. And there were all sorts of rumors going around. Who would kill Sharon Tate like this? Was it a drug bust? Was it a, a, a mafia hit, uh, a, a drug deal gone wrong? So many rumors, which added to the fomenting uh, paranoia of Hollywood.
0: And you actually, Polanski, you were friends with him and met him in Paris later after kind of the events unraveled. But he at that time was a
1: suspect too, right? And he was, he was curious about what was going on as well, right? That was, uh, that was very strange because uh, what the cops thought, the cops didn't have a clue. I mean, that was the, that was the truth. So uh, Polanski, did he, did he order a hit on his own family? It sounded outrageous, but he, was, he had his alibi. He was in England. And, and when he got back, I remember this, because I went to a press conference he had, and I kind of felt sorry for Roman because the media was a little bit hostile. There was suggestion that he may have set this up. And, and Roman was in tears, and Roman was distraught And Roman knew as much as we all knew, which was nothing. And so for literally for about a month or two, the police, and that was LAPD and the LA sheriffs, they all wondered about Polanski because don't forget, Polanski was the kind of depraved director that made a movie about Rosemary's Baby, which was about Mia Farrow plays the mother who is impregnated by the devil. So so the, the the crazy reasoning went well i mean if a guy makes that kind of bizarre movie uh, what what it, you know c- can he be guilty it, it, does he have this uh, this sanity insanity in his brain uh, it was a confusing time in hollywood believe me at that time until until uh, they they decided that manson and his gang were the were the people who were the ones that were responsible.
0: Right. And that wasn't until uh, Sadie Mae Glutz or Atkins spouted off in jail, but he actually was kind of, I found it interesting in your book that he was enlisted by the cops to kind of be uh he and uh, Sharon Tate's dad were kind of like independent PIs or private investigators. That's right. Can you talk uh, about yeah, that's,
1: that? that's a very interesting point you bring up because very few, you know, not too many people realize this. So the cops, Thought Roman's friends, one of Roman's friends may be responsible. It shows you how desperate they were, and they gave Roman a, a, a fingerprint blood stain kit to go round to his friends' houses and and run the test on their cars to see if there was any blood stains in their cars. And he went over to John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, and he actually ran the blood test on John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas' car. And of course, it was okay. But he Roman, in his in his somewhat warped thinking, uh, thought, well, you know, I had a, a one day affair with with John Phillips's girlfriend, um, uh, wife, and maybe he was getting revenge on me. So that was the way uh, the thinking went. And they did not have a clue about the Manson family. And as you pointed out a moment ago, it wasn't until three months later that Susan Atkins, who was one of the Charles Manson Devoted disciples was arrested for another murder that involved Manson and got little publicity. The murder of a musician named Gary Hinman, which happened three weeks before the Sharon Tate murders, so Susan Atkins was in jail facing murder charges for Gary Hinman, the musician, and she boasted to cellmates that she had killed Sharon Tate. Well, they first of all they thought this little girl, this this this. This little sort of 105 pound girl was boasting, was trying to get a little bit of um, in prison credibility. But then she told so many details about the house and what happened that they finally, the, the, the cellmates went to the police. The police at first kind of blew them off. But then eventually, some cops, some sheriff's department cops, came to the prison, the jail where Susan Atkins was there. And Susan Atkins spilled her guts and described in vivid detail the murders, etc. So that right. was how they cracked the case. It wasn't police work. It was a pure lucky break that Susan, uh, Susan Atkins blabbed to the cellmates. And that's how the case was finally broken.
0: And it was interesting because the two women who she blabbed to were uh, curious, kind of interesting people as well. But I found it interesting that one of her brags was, the family had already killed nineteen people, was what she had said. I don't think that that number count. There was five at uh, Cielo Drive, two at yes. Las Feliz, so and one Hinman. So where's the other ten victims? If, well, if she was telling the truth.
1: Well, the interesting again, again going, in, 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 we all surmise this during the trial. There was all sorts of rumors that there were a lot of, buried, of bodies buried in, around in the desert. I mean, they, there was a guy called Shorty uh, Shorty Shea who was a stuntman who was murdered by Manson and his gang and buried uh, in the Spahn movie ranch somewhere in a remote area. So there were other murders, but the police never, other than the ones you've just enumerated, and the one I just mentioned, the, the stuntman Shorty Shea, um, that, was, that was the number of the, the, the body count. Uh, but there were all sorts of rumours, even during the trial which took place, um, even during the trial, there, there were a lot of other corpses who, who's, who, were the, who had been uh, killed at Manson's orders. It was never quite proven. But uh, it, the body count, as you said, at one time, people said, well, it was two dozen dead people. But, you know, you've got to find the, the corpses to, to, to make, that, make that a truthful statement.
0: But one of the fascinating things about your involvement in this case was after the news of Atkins broke, they t- tied her back to Charles Manson, who they already had in jail. Can you talk about how your involvement, that in,
1: your involvement in that? As soon as it was in, it was actually December the second, nineteen sixty-nine, and I went down to a press conference held by LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, Chief Ed Davis. And Ed Davis mentioned Charles Manson. He mentioned other suspects, uh, Charles Tex Watson and a few other names. And he mentioned they all lived at the Spahn movie ranch. Well, uh, Manson happened to be in jail uh, somewhere else in the Death Valley region, um, up, up up about 200 miles from LA. And Manson, believe it or not, had been arrested for stealing cars and not murder. And so as soon as the police chief, Ed Davis said, Charles Manson, I went down to the Spahn Movie Ranch, and the Spahn Movie Ranch was a, a sort of a, a decrepit ranch that, in its heyday, was a a terrific spot for for movies. I mean, they shot a lot of westerns there, a lot of a lot of big films. But it but it had gone into decay, and it was now a, basically a place where tourists went to ride horses, and that's where Manson was living with his uh, devotees at the time. So I, I, I got in on it very early because as soon as I heard Manson, as soon as I heard the Spahn movie ranch, I raced down to the Spahn movie ranch and spent two days, three days actually, talking to remnants of the Manson family who were not, who were not involved in the murders. And through them, I got a most disturbing picture of Manson, his, his devotees, how we brainwashed them all, how we fed them LSD. Um, and how he said there's going to be a revolution, Uh, there's going to be a bloodshed, there's going to be a black uh, 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 rioting. Race
0: war, right? Race Race race
1: war, war. a total race war. And and they believed him. And Charlie Manson told his devotees, you know what? We're going to escape to an underground city in the California desert, and when the blood stops running, we will emerge from this underground city and we will be kings of the castle. I mean, talking to you as I do right now, that sounds absolutely ludicrous, and it was. But the other fascinating thing is that I must tell you that when um, there was a guy called uh, Paul Watkins, who was a right-hand man for Manson, and Brooks Poston, who was also a member of the Manson family, who were not involved in the murders, who told me this story. But the other thing, the other arrow to the bow is they said, well, you know, Charlie Manson used songs from the White Album of the Beatles. Wow, that's a funny coincidence because I happen to know the Beatles because a few years earlier I travelled with the Beatles on their first American tour. So they said to me, Charlie said the lyrics from songs like Helter Skelter were just a, a secret message from the Beatles to him warning him of the race war. Well, when I heard that, I thought, what a load of old toffee this is. I mean, what a load of rubbish. But, of course, I didn't uh, argue the point because this is the story they believed. And, indeed, it turned out that Manson did brainwash his disciples with lyrics from a lot of the Beatle hit songs on the White Album. So it, it, it was unbelievable. As a journalist, you're not going to say, um, you know, hey, William you are full of bs because you want to hear their story but i thought they were full of bs but they weren't and that right. was and that was another weird connection because i knew the beatles because of my previous journalistic I- endeavors and i knew wow that's that's absolute rubbish but th- so that was uh, that was it so i spent about 3 days down there talking to these guys i met some of the girls squeaky Frommy, who was not involved in the murders and a few other Manson girls who were still living there, and um, and I actually went away. And you mentioned this. I went away, and then about um, a year later, before the trial began, I wrote a a very fast book about um, about the Manson murders. And that did not endear me to the Manson family members who were still um, free and not charged with any of the murders. So that is kind of a very uh, brief uh, account of how my how I got sort of sucked into this morass.
0: Right. So you were at Spawn Ranch. But before that, you went to Independence with Steve Dunleavy, right?
1: You're absolutely right.
0: Can you talk well, that, about how that first arraignment of Manson? Well, A lot of yes, people don't I know, know that. that part of the story that he was originally arraigned in Independence outside yes. of Death Valley. Well,
1: that's right. Independence was the town. So, as I said, when the when the story broke about Manson being the ring, ringleader, the, the police chief said in, in early December, as soon as I, I heard that, I went to the, the Spawn Ranch. And as I said, and as you pointed out so clearly, Manson was in jail in Independence, California, for stealing cars and and stuff like that. And so off I went to Independence the same day, and he was being arraigned in court. And there he was in the court, this little guy who wandered in, in, in in ankle chains and pleaded not guilty to stealing cars, and... And, and at that time there were uh, there were some of the Manson girls who got up there so and it was quite amazing because Manson pled guilt pled not guilty to stealing cars and then the cops came up from LA and they said we have bigger fish to fry So they took him uh, and drove him back to LA where they charged him with the murders because they had charged him with the murders because Susan Atkins, the young lady, the Manson devotee that I mentioned a moment ago, Susan Atkins had already spoken to a Los Angeles grand jury and told the story yet again of what happened at the Sharon Tate House. Um, it sounds a little bit confusing, but uh, Manson was this guy up in Independence and suddenly the cops took him back to LA. And when he showed up in LA, they took him into court, they arraigned him and all hell broke loose. And then the trial, the trial unfolded. What uh, six months later?
0: Right, and you have you have a picture in your book of that original arraignment of Manson in Independence. So he looks wild; he's got this wild-looking full beard and everything. And uh, so you were at Spawn Ranch. It was interesting that they told you that they were picking up girls for Manson, and he was able to. He had some kind of technique where he could turn them into members
1: of the family within an hour, at least. I think that's what Paul Watkins said, right? Yes, was- uh, the Paul Watkins was a good-looking young man and i always say uh, when i say this it, this dates me but there was a, a famous actor called clark gable a good-looking actor and i always thought that that paul looked like a young clark gable a very good-looking guy with a smooth uh, demeanor and he knew how to to talk to people and he was the guy that charlie manson sent out to recruit these young girls these runaways these hitchhiking girls and and of course i mean obviously Paul was quite pleased at his little assignment because he picked up young women and he brought them to Manson. And Manson had this uncanny ability to hone in on what was bothering these runaways, these 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 sad young women, and he could talk them. He 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 just knew. He look, he had spent his life in 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 reform schools, in prisons, and he knew how to handle himself. And he knew he had the gift. Of the gab, he could he could sell uh, I don't know what they say sell snake oil to whoever ice. you sell snake oil sell ice
0: it? to an Eskimo,
1: Eskimo. Okay, there you go. I forgot that. Um, so so Manson had this uh, devious, clever way, and he it worked. It worked on these young women who, who who hated their father, hated their mother, maybe had this other hangout, and Manson immediately honed in on on their weaknesses. And within an hour, these girls had become, uh, as amazing as it may seem, a, a disciple of Charlie, and they believed whatever he said. And and I'll ask you this, if I may, for for a second, William. Um, even today, and we're in the twenty first century. Uh, oh, we're in the twenty first century. Um, even today, there are gurus that pop up from time to time who who make who have the who have the the gift of the gab to to get people to do things you and I would think was was ridiculous, and and it happens all the time. Um, I always mention this guy Jim Jones in Jonestown, and that was quite a few years ago, who was able to get several hundred disciples to do what he wanted, which was to swallow poison lemonade and kill themselves. So, so Manson was in in the, in the long line of of, of gurus who said something and his uh, followers obeyed without, without question.
0: Right. No, it was fascinating. I, I, he knew something like he would try to go in the position of their father or something. So if they had some the kind father. of issues with their daddy. Yeah.
1: No. It, go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, but I think you're right. He knew some technique. He had somehow learned something. And then, and then they became really di- disciples because they, so many of those women stuck with him. And you write about that in your book. They're at the trials. They're, Emulating what he's doing, so like he somehow owns them, like mentally kind of owned a lot of those women. they were really crazy, and they were doing things that, uh, yeah, they're you know not society. Well, well, really I, I let me just
1: throw something in. I mean, they were so devoted. There was the there were the girls that were in jail facing trial. There were a bunch of of young women and guys who were outside. And on one occasion, and and I think it was in the middle of the trial. That they 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 took a bunch of guns and raided uh, they raided a sporting uh, store in Los Angeles and they and they I, I mean this is outrageous but it's true they raided a sporting store in West Los, in, in 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 the South Los Angeles area where they were going to steal guns so that they could then be heavily armed and break Charlie out of jail. I mean right. it's it's it. it it, listening to it today, fifty odd years later, it boggles the mind. And you say, "Well, I don't believe that; it's outrageous." But it right. wasn't then.
0: No, I mean it was a crazy era too. So a lot of his kind of apocalyptic rants and stuff were based upon nuclear fears, war, you know, Vietnam and stuff like that. So it was a cra- and a lot of social upheaval too. Too. So the context is important. But he, I mean, so you, he got transferred to L.A. and your book your original book five to die was carried by was it cannerick was it his defense attorney whatever yeah, Well, general? what
1: happened was um i had written this very fast book called five to die which was based on my um my reportage from the spa movie ranch and so when it came out a couple of months two or three months before the trial began charlie manson's lawyers brought the book into the judge and, sh- and showed the judge um the book and said look We cannot have a fair trial when this book has come out. So we would like uh, you to change the venue to somewhere else, San Francisco, where they don't know about this case. And the judge looked at my book and he said something like, oh, this is the usual scurrilous rubbish. Uh, Motion denied. The trial will continue in Los Angeles. And it continued in Los Angeles gotcha
0: and and so can you describe what it was like I, I, the trial i mean it was a 10-month trial right
1: yes it was and i must tell you that it was a a bit of a circus because first of all manson uh, and the girls they started off they shaved their heads they 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 they, they, they put the swastikas on their forehead and crosses on their forehead they came into court every day singing um uh, and and then they and then Manson hired um, the the most obstructionist lawyer he could think of to handle his case, a guy called Irving Kinerick, and and the rest of the the rest of these defendants, uh, Susan Atkins and Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Kremwinkle hired lawyers. Well, lawyers who were inexperienced. Well, I would say that Leslie Van Houten hired Ronald Hughes, and Ronald Hughes. Was straight out of UCLA Law School. He'd never even handled a traffic ticket, and here he was handling the most notorious murder case in in the history of the, of, of that time. He knew nothing. He knew nothing. I mean, his his office was the garage uh, that he rented, uh, with no windows but a plastic uh, a plastic ceiling, uh, no telephone. He knew nothing about uh, law and order and, and legalities. And then they had, um, for Susan Atkins, they had a guy called uh, Dae Shin. And Dae Shin was a lawyer that, whose major cases were immigration uh, requests for green cards. Again, obviously that is perfect uh, training to handle a major murder case. <laughs> not, not. Um, and so that was the, the, the caliber of the lawyers. And so as a result, it was a bit of a madhouse. Uh, I, I mentioned that. I mentioned the, uh, Manson's behavior during the trial. Uh, on one occasion, a trial got underway. Manson got upset with the judge, and and we—I was sitting in the the third row, and Manson suddenly jumped up, grabbed a sharp pencil, and dived at the judge and said, "You know, I'm going to kill you, old man." And of course, fortunately, a, 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 one of Bailiff. the Bailiff. yeah, one of the bailiffs, kind of rugby tackled him. And, and, and then Manson was put in a holding room where he watched uh, the next week's uh, trial unfold on the a, on a television. So uh, that's what happened. Uh, uh, inept lawyers, um, uh, the case went on. And then the amazing thing is, I must tell you this, that once the prosecution led by Vincent Bugliosi, who was the deputy district attorney, once the prosecution finished its case, uh, then the, the judge said, "Now the defence has an opportunity to rebut the, 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 the prosecution," and the lawyers all got out and said, "We have no evidence to present." And that was unbelievable. Nobody wanted to say anything, although I suppose they had the right not to testify, um, to if because it could it, it could incriminate them. But I'll tell you this. The thing I remember most about, William, about the, that trial was that Manson did testify for one hour. However, however, he testified when the jury had been sent away because the judge wanted to hear what he had to say. So Manson got up, and I remember that vividly because for one hour, Manson talked about how he was a child of, of broken homes, how he had nothing. He was quite eloquent. He made sense. He he rambled on for one hour, and without a note. Wow. And after after he finished his little presentation to the the courtroom with no jury there, the judge said, "Now, Mr. Manson, perhaps you would like to uh, uh, repeat that when the jury comes in." He said, "No, I am not testifying." And the girls all stood up and said, "We are not testifying." And then the the the, the jurors came back. And they never heard a single word of defence from any of the defendants.
0: Wow. Right. Amazing. Nothing. No Amazing. character witness, nothing. That's nothing. incredible. And the he. The only was, time, you- William,
1: the only time the character witnesses came in was the jury convicted Manson and the girls, and then they had whether they should get the death penalty. And at that stage, uh, the girls testified, and so did the parents of a couple of the girls testified. But that was the only defense. But the, but the but the verdict had been in, guilty on all counts. Right.
0: And so he was gone. I mean, it's interesting, too, because Bugliosi, that whole helter-skelter element was his theory of the case. But, I mean, you were talking in your book, you talked to John Lennon about their, what their, in, in the impact of that whole theory was. And it's interesting in your, your book because you're a critique or critic of that kind of approach to this crime, this whole helter skelter. That was the, the causation or the reason why they did these murders. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, William, I mean, when I got into the court on day one of the trial and when Vincent Bugliosi stood up to make opening statements, he came up with the reason for the murders was that the Beatles made them do it. The Beatles lyrics were the incitement to, to murder. Now, when I heard that, I thought, is the world going mad? Because I I mean, it just made no sense. And what had happened, I later learned, and this sounds like I'm stroking myself, but what had happened was I learned from another lawyer in the office that Bugliosi took my first book and used the Helter Skelter, Beatles made me do it, the- thesis for his case. And when I heard wow. in the on the opening day, Bugliosi stood up and used that self same reason for murder. I, I, I thought to myself, well, it's crazy. It, it, it'll, never, it'll never wash. But you know why it washed? Okay, what you know why it washed, William? Because the jury saw the way Manson controlled the girls in the courtroom, he saw he had manipulative skills over, over the disciples, his, his girls. And so, so that theory that that, that that he told them the Beatles were, were sending secret messages, and blah blah blah, uh, kind of kind of sat with the jury and they believed it and and they convicted. And that was <laughs> and, and, and my right. my thought of this guy, this Vincent Bugliosi, must be <laughs> gone round the bend with this stupid uh, and, theory uh, was was proven wrong because the, the jury convicted.
0: Right. And well, that theory went on to become the number one best selling true crime book of all time.
1: Yeah, Vincent uh, Bugliosi wrote Helter Skelter, which is a terrific book. But I want I want to tell you this. I mean, Vincent is no longer with us. And he I mean, if you read that book, it was the guy that solved the Manson murders single handedly. Never mind the cops, never mind the sheriffs, never mind the LAPD. Vincent Bugliosi was the one that did everything. And so it was a little bit self-serving to Vincent. But as I said, he got the job done. And I guess you can't knock him for that, can you?
0: Right. So he got the conviction. And it was interesting that he, he wasn't even supposed to be like how he became involved in this most important. or One of the most fascinating, compelling crime stories ever was kind of random, right?
1: It was. And it was an interesting story that not many people know. So th- when the trial began, the guy that was at head of the pack, who was a chief trial lawyer, was a guy called Aaron Stovitz, who was actually Vincent Buliosi's boss. Well, Aaron Stovitz actually had, before the trial began, he'd given an interview to Rolling Stone magazine. And in that interview, before the trial began, he spelled out the prosecution's case. Now, Bugli- um, Mr. Stovitz, who was a bright man, um, was reprimanded by the district attorney for talking to the media. And he said, well, you know, I spoke to the press, but they said they wouldn't quote me. Well, that's kind of a little bit weak. So he got warned by the district attorney, Aaron, keep your mouth shut. Okay, so we're in the trial and and, and Stovitz is running the running the operation. And about, um, about three days or three weeks, I can't even remember, into the trial, um, Susan Atkins, one of the, one of the defendants, uh, was sick. Um, and, and, and as a result of a uh, tummy upset, uh, the, 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 trial was, was delayed, postponed for a day or two. Well, when, when, when Aaron Stovitz came out and, 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 somebody asked him, well, Aaron, what do you think of Susan Atkins? He said, well, she's a fantastic actress. And he mentioned a, a famous uh, Sarah
0: Bernhardt Sarah Bernhardt.
1: Yes. He said. It's better than Sarah Bernhardt. I'm glad you remembered that. I didn't. Um, Better than Sarah Bernhardt. Well, the Los Angeles newspapers ran with, ran that quote on the front page headline. As soon as that came out, the district attorney called Aaron in and said, "Aaron, you've blown it. You're off the case. Goodbye. And in, in stepped the intrepid Vincent Bugliosi. And Vincent, as I say, did a terrific job. He ate, he slept, he lived the trial for over a year, and I think he never went home. He slept in the, in the in the office, but he got the job done, as I say, and that's how he happened to be king of the road, king of the prosecutors. Although when you read, if you read um, his book, which you obviously did, uh, Helter Skelter, he kind of fudges that and indicates that he was selected out of 398 398- lawyers in the district attorney's office to run the case a right. little bit of exaggeration but right
0: self-serving he was yeah. uh yeah he he was an interesting character there's no yes, question
1: about was. it he was
0: but uh there was a real i mean during that trial there was all kinds of death threats and people were afraid somebody got drugged heavy drugs Yeah. so the context of the trial too was really scary like i think he got threatened with uh, his family got threatened mm-hmm. so it was uh there was a definitely kind of a harrowing experience or harrowing time. Well, well, the
1: interesting thing is you've got to realize the defendants were all locked up. However, the devotees, the the, the fans, the followers, the disciples of Manson were still running outside. They stood outside, they shaved their heads. They told the media we're going to be here until Charlie walks out a free man. And uh, they were also a a bit of a threat. Um, And, and, Honestly, they they believed that Manson was innocent. They believed that he should be freed. So they were also a little bit of a menace. And I think I I, I didn't mention it. I think I write about it in the book. On the first day of the trial, Squeaky Fromme, or Lynn Squeaky From, Fromme is the way she she likes her name to be pronounced, said to me, she she knew I'd written the book, that um, she threatened me. She said, basically, well, uh, you know, perhaps uh, have you ever... Do you ever know what it's like to have a knife, a sharp knife, put down your throat? I kind of took that as a threat. And so there were these disciples who would still do anything for Manson running free. And, and it, was, it was crazy, but uh, you had to watch your step.
0: Right. I mean, and there's a lot more in your book. You go in detail about a lot of other stuff. Dennis Wilson, Melcher, Manson, a lot of detail about the trial. But we're kind of at 38 minutes. Do you mind taking a few questions, Ivor, before we wrap it up? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Uh, One somebody asked, let's see, were the, it's fact says, question, were the killings part of a ritual, random, or some revenge hit? Do you ever, what's your thoughts on Motive? I don't
1: believe they were part of any ritual or revenge. Um, Here's what I believe the reason that Charles Manson in his demented mind sent the sent the gang out to kill was this. There was a guy called Bobby Beausoleil, who was a devotee of, of Charles Manson. And Bobby Beausoleil was sitting in jail for the murder of the musician Gary Hinman, which was ordered by Charles Manson. The murder of Gary Hinman took place three weeks before, two weeks, two and a half weeks before the Sharon Tate murders. So he was sitting in jail, and he was keeping his mouth shut. And now Manson somehow thought, well, if I set up a couple of murders with the same uh, the same style, the same ritualistic way uh, that Gary Hinman was murdered, and he was murdered, and his blood was was written on the on the wall, um, if I do the same thing, um, then the police are going to say, hey, hold on a minute, there are two other murders that followed the murder of Gary Hinman and it, the same style, the same MO, uh, Manson thought well, the cops would say, well, we've got this guy, Bobby Beausoleil in prison. He couldn't possibly have done the other murder. So we'll we'll cut, kick him loose. I mean, that is demented thinking. W- wouldn't you agree, William? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's crazy, but I honestly believe that he thought he could put the cops off the trail of Bobby Beausoleil and Bobby Beausoleil would be set free if there are other murders. And they would have said, well, I mean, there's obviously a gang of killers running around and Bobby Beausoleil is an innocent man. Let him let him go home.
0: And Bobby Beausoleil apparently is in the hospital right now. I I think he's. Oh, I
1: didn't know that. Well, Bobby Beausoleil has been in prison for a long time. Bobby Beausoleil has been trying to get um, trying to get um, a parole for a long time. But uh, what you've just told me, I don't know anymore, but he's ill, is he?
0: That's my understanding. Yeah. I'll have to go back and look, but I know he was in the prison that's associated with San Quentin at least because I've done a lot of research about him. He was affiliated with Kenneth Anger. So. Yes, he was.
1: He was. That's a fascinating story. But yeah, my God. And that's, that's, that's room for another. uh, (laughs) Another talk. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Here's another question, Ivor. Was J.C. Bring selling drugs?
1: Um, Yeah, I see that uh, Joshua is asking a question. Um, J.C. Bring wasn't selling drugs but he was into drugs i mean the night of the murders uh, jc ring's drug dealer showed up at the sharon tate house to 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 drop off a, a delivery and to be honest with you jc bring was into drugs uh, although um, you know what's going to happen is i i've been approached by some people who say you know jc bring <coughs> jc bring is the forgotten guy and you know he he was he was an innocent victim which he was but he also had a colourful background. He was the he was the hairdresser to Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, uh, and and Sinatra, and, yeah, and Sinatra and all those people. So the idea is, I don't think Jay was selling drugs, but Jay was definitely into drugs.
0: And did you ever hear anything about kind of the occult <laughs> elements around there? I knew that Tate was in Eye of the Storm, and Polanski had done Rosemary's Baby, and I had heard that Sebring had. Kind of like he was into the occult too. Did you ever get any any feel for that while you were in LA at that time in '69?
1: Um, not not really. I must admit. Uh, I mean, I've heard all the things you have mentioned, and and indeed, um, uh, I, I don't think black magic. You know, the, the, I forget the name of the black magic. The, the guy was a Satan in the area. Supposedly met with Manson. Oh, uh, LeVay? And then, uh, uh, LeV- well, uh, Anton LeVay, LeVay Yes, yeah. that was it. And and so. There may have been some dabbling, but I don't think it was a a, a, a key factor in what, what went down, to be honest with you. Gotcha.
0: And Susan says, you're a treasure, little bits of information. Guys, you should get this book. It's very detailed, first-person account, on-site. And, uh, again, the title of the book is Manson Exposed a Reporter's 50-Year Journey into Madness and Murder, and where can people, do you still have signed copies? I know you have an audio of this book, audio book.
1: I have an working. audio of the book. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking now, uh, yeah, uh, you can get my book, of course, on uh, Ivor Davis books at gmail.com. I think that's it. Or you can get it on you can get it on Amazon, which is probably easier. And then you can go to my website and send a send a note and, and um, I'll send a signed card and you can stick it in the back of my book. Because in this day and age, as you know, as everybody knows, William, there ain't many live book signings out there there and I, I did quite a few in the when the book came out but, but now I'll just send a picture uh, or, or a card or something which people can then stick into the into the book if they contact me via my uh, Ivor Davis uh, books at gmail.com.
0: So iverdavisbooks.com is your web that's your website and that's your email too so you can get the email is there anything you'd like to add or anything i'd miss before we wrap wrap up yeah email? no you've
1: gone into some fascinating details but as as you know and as everybody knows and there are so many manson devotees and manson fans out there it's it's it it never goes away it just never goes away and so uh, all i want to say is that right now um Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel, who are still alive, are trying to get out on parole. And every time they apply for parole, as as I'm sure you know, is the parole board says yes, but the governor of California says no. And I think that's going to be the next time that happens. The, the parole board's going to be rejected, and they're going to stay in jail for the rest of their lives because it's a political thing. And the same thing goes, and I know like, we're talking about it and we're running out of time. Um, uh, I, I, I was very into the Bobby Kennedy murder. I was at the hotel at the time when he got shot in, in the kitchen. And I and every so often, Sirhan Sirhan, who murdered Bobby Kennedy, uh, and I saw it, um, is up for parole. And, and he's up for parole now. And the parole board says, let him out. He was the guy that killed Bobby Kennedy. Uh, let him out. And then the governor of California will eventually say, no way is he going to get out. So, that's the same with the, with the, with the Manson women.
0: Yeah. It's too bad. I mean, Sir Ian, Sir Ian should be out. I don't think he did it. I don't, he wasn't in the right position, but uh, there's a lot. I just did a show on mind control about him, but oh, what was the, well, that's very yeah. Interesting.
1: yeah, because, because it would not seem to be, I mean, I mean, I know we don't, we're not talking about Bobby Kennedy, but because I was there and because I, I, I sort of followed what happened very closely, um, Shihan uh, was there a second gunman? Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's
0: a, a, a topic that just won't go away. Yeah. I've, I've uh, there's a really good book by Lisa Peace who I interviewed about that whole case. And yes, I think that, yes, I remember. Uh, yeah. but here's Joshua says that should be your next book. You should do a book on you being at RFK and you can take it all the way to the present because Sir Ian, Sir still around. Right. Yes. Anyway, uh, it's a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. Again, the title of the book is Manson Exposed. A Reporter's 50-Year Journey into Madness and Murder by Ivor Davis. And you can get the audiobook on Amazon website, ivordavisbooks.com, which I'll put in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, stay there.